0: This summer at Holy Cross, we are diving into the book of Psalms. We will be looking at the different types of Psalms and the themes that are contained in this book as a whole. We especially want you to learn about how we as believers can relate to the emotions in the Psalms and learn to pray through those in your everyday life. Join us now as we unpack another Psalm. Uh, let's begin our series this summer. You guys have been working through the Psalms. Today we're on Psalm 19. Um, so if you want to pull it up on your phone or if you have a Bible, open up. You could look at it there. Follow along. Check my work. Um, it's, uh, we might be able to get up on the screen with time, but if not, no worries. I'll read sections as we get to them. Psalm 19 is a psalm of worship. Psalm 19 is a psalm of worship specifically because of God's revelation of himself to his people, the way in which God reveals who he is to those that he's called to himself. And we see that he makes himself known in this psalm first through creation and second through his law, through his word. And then the psalm ends with the psalmist, the writer of the psalm, responding to this revelation of God in a particular way. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, the creation of God, the law or the word of God, and then the response of God's people to this revelation. So that's where we're going. So let's dig in. Psalm 19, verse 1. The first section of this psalm speaks all about the way in which creation reveals God to us. Listen to it again. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Creation, the psalm tells us, is speaking. It is speaking in a language that everyone can hear. And what is it speaking of? It's speaking of God. It's speaking of his glory. It's speaking of his handiwork, the things that he's done. Creation is revealing God to us even as we live within it. Now, I think we know this intuitively. I mean, we have all been taken aback by the beauty of the ocean in the morning, haven't we? We've all been floored by the majesty of the mountains as you drive up into North Carolina. The stars, the planets overhead. The wonder of created world catches us, doesn't it? It pulls us out of ourselves. It causes us to ponder things too high for us. Beauty and fear and wonder and glory, majesty. There's something of, of, uh, of a whisper that we can't help but hear of creation speaking about something bigger than ourselves. I think this is why so many religions develop around worshipping the created things, the worship of the sun or the moon or the stars. These are things that are intimately tied to our existence, and, that they, and they speak of something greater than ourselves. It's, I think this is why modern kind of New Age spirituality has such an emphasis on being rooted into the matter of the world. You know, walking barefoot and having stones on your windowsill. There's like this beauty around us that we're trying to get into somehow. Everyone recognizes that creation is communicating something spiritual. There's something powerful going on there that resonates with something in us. There are ancient words being spoken. But what is being spoken? What are the words? What is creation saying? The psalm tells us it speaks of the glory of God. Creation is powerful, it's moving, it's transformative because it speaks of the God who made it. It reveals to us a God that is bigger and wilder and more beautiful and more wonderful than ourselves, more than we can comprehend. Creation speaks of God and of his glory. And this is what it was always intended to do. From the beginning, God designed creation to speak to us of His glory, to declare His wonder. Creation is all—all all of it—is God's temple. Did you know that? It's God's temple of glory and worship. You know, if you've been in the church for a while, you may have encountered the debates about creation: was it six 24-hour days in which God made the world in Genesis 1? Are these days the kind of the metaphor of God's days in which a day is a thousand years? Some of us have heard that debate. It's a debate that Christians have been having since the beginning. Since the beginning. And there's back and forth about it. Good Christians can be on either side of it. The reason we have that debate and why it's gotten heated in the last little while, at least in part, is because it's it's a scientific, methodological question. And that's how we think as Westerners. We like to think in questions of how this works. We like to know about the mechanics of the thing. We want to take it apart. We want to know the order in which things happen, the way in which it came out. We ask how questions. How did God do this? How exactly did it work? Those are good questions. It might be, though, that Genesis 1 will never answer them for us. At least not completely. Because it might be that Genesis 1 is answering a different question. We come to it asking how God made the world. What if Genesis 1 is there to teach us why God made the world? What the world is for. Not only that he made it, which he did, but that he made it for a purpose in six days. In the ancient Near East, in the the region around ancient Israel, the peoples had a tradition of building temples. And these temples might have taken decades to build. You think about these great stone ziggurats or beautiful columns. Who knows how long it took to put it together? But they furnished them in six days. In six days. And on the sixth day, the idol would be brought in for the temple. And the assumption is that overnight between the sixth and the seventh day, the deity, whichever deity they've picked to worship, would breathe life into that idol and then would be present in that idol. And on the seventh day, worship would begin. This would be the beginning of the temple. Now, what would it mean for Israel to hear the creation of the world described as Genesis 1 describes it? To hear that the world is made in six days. To hear that on the sixth day, the image of God is placed in it. And God breathes life into that image. That on the seventh day, worship begins. What would it have meant to Israel to hear creation described that way? It would have told them why the world was made. It would have told them what it was for. They would know that creation was a temple. That creation existed to declare the glory of who God is, to cultivate our worship, and that we might cultivate it into the proper worship of God in beauty and in culture. All of creation has existed from the beginning to declare the glory of God. This is what it's doing. As C.S. Lewis puts it, that means that every piece of creation that we see is a sunbeam and our imaginations are to run up that sunbeam to the sun. Every bit of creation is a bit of the glowing glory of God intended to drive our hearts to recognize He who is above it all, who is behind it all, who has created it all, and who has created us and is good and beautiful and right and true. That's what creation is for. Which means that it is good and right to surf at sunrise. Good and right. It is good and right to sip coffee on the back porch as the crickets come out. It is good and right to sit quietly in the marsh as the birds come back to roost. It is good and right. Why? Because creation is declaring the glory of God to you. And you get to listen to it. Creation is speaking of the glory of God. But that's not the only way that God reveals himself to us, is it? It actually wouldn't be enough. We can learn a lot about God from creation, but there's a lot that we can't know. There needs to be another way that he might reveal himself. And the psalmist gives us another beginning in verse 7. Because God also speaks to us, reveals himself to us through his law, through his word. I remember sitting around a campfire with some work friends years ago. I was working at Kudu, which is a coffee craft beer spot downtown Charleston. If you've been there, you love it. It's a great spot. and I, my, the, the assistant manager would do a Friendsgiving every year. Everyone would bring their leftovers, and we would swap, and we'd sit around and um, have a great time in his backyard. I remember one of those Friendsgivings, sitting around the campfire. A friend of a friend at work had had one too many. And he began pontificating about his visions of God, what he believed God was and what God meant, loudly. And uh, perhaps too confidently, right? Uh, <laughs> But this was his point. He he said that he firmly believed it was impossible for us to know God. Impossible. How could we? We're finite creatures. We're small. We can't even grasp this world. We don't know what's at the bottom of the ocean yet in places. How could we know God? He's so far above us. He's so high, so mighty. He is infinite and holy and perfect. If God exists, it would be impossible, unthinkable, that we could ever attain to knowledge of him, rightly. How could we ever reach Him? And of course, He's right, mostly. He's pretty right. There's no way we could ever actually climb to God. There's no way we could ever comprehend Him fully with our mind. Look at creation declaring the glory of God. Can you really see Him fully through that? Can you know Him as He's meant to be known? No, of course not. God is too immense. He's too infinite, too perfect. We could never get there, but what my friend forgot or didn't consider was the possibility that God might make himself known to us. Not that we would get there on our own, but that he might speak. That he might speak to us through his word and through his law. There's a different kind of knowledge of God that we get through his word than we get in creation, isn't there? There's a personal level of knowledge. There's an intimacy we learn the character of God here in his word. The psalm kind of is intensifying as it focuses on the, the face of God, as it were. The, and the language of God shifts, too. In the first verse, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word God there in Hebrew is the word El, which is the word that means God. I mean, it's just general God, deity, divine, the divine being. Any, any God could be described as El, El, God, But the word in verse 7 is different. Now we're speaking of the law of the Lord. And the word Lord there in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. Yahweh, which is the name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses, the name that God gave to his people so that they could call him personally. You see the shift, it's focusing down, it's becoming more intimate. Creation reveals the glory of God, but now we see his character. His word reveals himself to us. And listen to the words that the psalmist uses to describe this law, this word of God. Words like perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous, desirable, sweet. Question, do you think about God's word that way? Those are the adjectives that ring out in your morning quiet time when you open to Leviticus. (laughs) There are days for me when quiet time is that way, but very often it's not. When I'm reading scripture and the words that come to mind are a lot closer to dry or dull, dusty. Culture tells us repeatedly that it is outdated. needs to be revised. We hear this from the outside, we feel some of it on the inside, don't we? But that isn't the image that the psalmist gives at all. The psalmist gives an image of scripture like precious gold, like a lot of good gold. It is wealth and it is riches. It's like honey. It is sweet and it is sticky and it is refreshing and it's healing. Look look at what it does. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. How can the psalmist say all that? How can he think about God's word like that when we so often struggle to? Well, it's simple. He understands something that we forget. And that is that the word of God, the law of God is a revelation of God to us. It is the way in which God reveals his character to us. It's the way in which we get to see him and know him now. The purpose of scripture is not primarily to tell us what to do, not even primarily to tell us how to get into heaven. Those are the consequences of what scripture reveals. They're not the primary goal. The primary goal of scripture is to reveal God to us in every word. And it does. And this is why the psalmist rejoices to consider it. He says, I get to know him now. I get to see him. I get to learn about him and his character and his beauty, his perfection. Creation reveals the glory of God. God's word, his law reveals his perfection and his wonder And so the psalmist meditating on this revelation of God comes to a response. That's starting in verse 12. And his response comes in two parts. First, the author asks to be declared innocent, which is a strange turn for the psalm to take, isn't it? The creation declares the glory of God. The law is perfect and pure and true. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? A strange bend for it to take, isn't it? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Why are we suddenly talking about guilt and shame and sin and forgiveness? How has this happened? It seems that... As the psalmist meditates on the revelation of who God is, he is confronted by the opposite of that revelation in his heart. It seems that as he wonders at the glory of God in creation, he is struck by the ignoble desires that he carries with him. As he reads about the perfection of God's law and of his word and of the revelation of God's character in his perfection and in his goodness, he finds himself to be imperfect, and insufficient and unworthy. He has errors that he has hidden from himself, and he doesn't even know that they're there that weigh him down. He has errors that he knew were errors and that he did anyway that weigh him down, and he knows it. It's like the way when you uh, walk into the bathroom and flip on the mirror and the, the light in the mirror, and suddenly everything is there to be seen every blemish, every fault. Or when you're in a room and someone walks in who is undeniably beautiful or powerful and you immediately feel like you are smaller as a result. By this comparison... The psalmist is having that experience as he meditates on the wonder of God. He withdraws because he knows there is a problem in him that needs to be rectified if he is to be in relationship with this God. Declare me innocent, Keep me from my sins. Then I shall be blameless. And the psalm ends with a prayer. A simple prayer that we've heard many times. A lot of preachers like to use it when they get up to preach. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is beautiful. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable. The heavens declare the glory of God. Their words are right and true and perfect. The law declares the character of God and his perfection. Its words are right and true and perfect. My words aren't. Let my words be true, God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart from which they spring, may they be acceptable, God. Let me be like your creation. Let me be like your law, perfect in revelation. He sees the revelation of God's character. He recognizes his failures, his lack, his absence, the opposite in him, and he knows that the Lord must bridge that gap, that the Lord must reconcile the glorious perfection of God and the weak imperfection of humanity. He knows that it must be done, and he gives us a hint as to how it will be done in the very last word of the psalm. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Redeemer. Redeemer, that's the one who rescues the one in slavery, the one who buys back his family members from debt. It's the close family member who saves the one who is in trouble. This is the Redeemer. The psalm ends in the most intimate place it discovers, the Redeemer, the God who would save his people as though they were his own family. And the psalmist knows that this must happen, but he does not know how it will happen. He cannot know. He has revelation from the heavens. He has revelation from the Word. And there are hints throughout of what God is going to do. But we see what he has not yet seen. And that is that God has revealed himself in creation, the Word incarnate, to redeem us. That the creation that declares the glory of God in the heavens and in the, in, and in the earth, it declares the glory of God in the person of Jesus, who took matter into himself, was himself entering into creation, bearing a created body that would declare the glory of God through his life and from the cross and in his resurrected form. Jesus, who is the Word of God, who is the perfection of the revelation of the Father, the Word who enters into our lives that we might hear God anew and be made new, just like creation was made by God's Word. Jesus is the bridegroom that comes out like the sun. Jesus is the strong man who runs to the end to rescue his people. Jesus is the law that is sweeter than honey who gives himself as bread and wine, a meal that satisfies, that enlightens our eyes and revives our hearts. He is the Redeemer who we need. He is the revelation of God come to us. Let me leave you with this exhortation then, friends. Friends, delight in God's creation. It is his gift of revelation to you. Enjoy it. Deliberately. Friends, delight in God's word, in his law. It is intended for you that you might know him. Delight in it and worship. Friends, delight in God's son. He is our redeemer that we might know God fully again, that we might speak with right words, that we might have right hearts. This is good news for us. Amen.